Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. Well, if, if you would this morning, turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We are continuing our series um, about membership entitled Membership Matters. And membership does matter. We're, we're examining uh, New Testament passages about, about the importance of the local church, uh, about the importance of of a representative, involved, um, weighty membership uh, that the scriptures give us. And we're preaching on this uh, topic as, as we move forward in our uh, desire to become more biblical and more pure as a church, trying to restore members uh, that are wayward and uh, haven't been in some time. And this morning, the text that I'm preaching deals specifically with uh, the topic of, of gathering together, of assembling together as the body of Christ and the importance of that. I'm going to try and get through the text uh, the best that I can, and it's, it's a lot there. We could spend a lot more time than one Sunday on this topic, and we may even revisit this specific text later on in the series just for Reiteration and to continue to search the depths of the Word of God, uh, praying that He would teach us. But I'll be in Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to try and walk through and preach through verses 19 through 25. And so if you would read along in your Bibles with me, you don't necessarily have to stand this morning, but just take this in as we read this text and allow the, the Word of God to, to wash over you. And that the Spirit of God would write this on our hearts, help me preach it, and help us apply it as a congregation. Verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray one more time. Ask the Lord's help for us to get through this together and we will dive in. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. It's in Jesus's name that we even come to you. It's through the name of Jesus that we worship this morning in spirit and in truth. And we are so grateful for the blood, the blood that is our victory, uh, Lord, the blood that is our plea, that is our assurance before you. It's all about the work of Jesus. And so help us today, God, to comprehend what you have written in your word. I pray for your help this morning as I preach. And I know that 
Apart from you, I can do nothing, Lord. And it is your spirit that takes your word. Uh, that I'd only be a vessel this morning through your word would be preached. And I pray for our church, uh, Lord, that you would help us to self-examine. David cried out and asked you to, to search him, to know his heart, to try his thoughts, to see if there be any grievous way in us. And I pray, Lord, as I have done that this week, that you would allow us as a church collectively this morning to ask that same plea that you would search us, Lord, and that if sin be brought out or convicted, Lord, that you would give us the grace to repent and that you would lead us, God, in the everlasting way. Teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we are going to look again. I'm going to try and make it all the way through verse 25, starting in verse 19. But if you look at the text, it's broken up by two qualifiers. We have therefore, and so good Bible students, we should ask, what is the therefore? As David says, what is it therefore? And so it's, it's bridging together two patterns of thought. And what we have here in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, is the great hinge that the book of Hebrews is broken up into. It's the hinge that connects the two pieces together. Typically in the New Testament, we see that the writers write with a specific style, especially the uh, the, the Apostle Paul, and I'm not contending for his authorship this morning for the book of Hebrews, but we do see a pattern in the New Testament as Paul writes, especially in his epistles of, of indicatives and imperatives. First, Paul will lay out a, a deep section of doctrine, whether it's the doctrine of sal- typically the doctrine of salvation and what God has accomplished for believers in Christ Jesus. And then the second portion of the letter will be broken up with imperatives. And we know that imperatives are commands. They are the practical side of Christian living. And that's typically how a lot of the New Testament, especially the epistles, are broken up. And so that's what we have here in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. We have this massive, therefore, brothers. There is this, there is this transition in the text from one thought from deep doctrine to to practical Christian living. And from chapters 1 through 10, the author of Hebrews has argued and preached from the Old Testament scriptures and from some new, the preeminence of the Son of God, the preeminence of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus. Many series through the book of Hebrews has been titled that Jesus is greater because he argues throughout the entire book, the supremacy of the second person of the Trinity. It's about the work of Christ as he is the sacrifice. It's about the work of Christ as he is our great high priest, as he has fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy, every Old Testament typology and shadow and type was fulfilled perfectly in the Son of God. And he argues that Jesus alone is great. He is the greatest. He has preeminence over all Things. He is greater than the Old Testament priests. He is greater than the Old Testament sacrifices. He is greater than the Old Testament veil. He is greater. And so here, after some serious doctrine in the book of Hebrews, it's thick. I mean, you have to know some Old Testament if you're going to read through the book of Hebrews. You have to know the book of Leviticus. Uh, and here in 19 begins some Christian, some practical Christian application. And so we see Therefore, therefore, brothers, he says, since, okay, you're going to see that word twice, hopefully in your translation, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22 begins the let us passages. As David referred it as the lettuce patch of the New Testament. Let us draw near with a true heart. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up. And so we have two predicates. We have two things that qualify the exhortations. We have deep doctrinal truth in verses 19 and 20 and 21. And then we have the practical exhortations to the church. Let us do this. Since these things have happened, since these truths are true, let us do these things. And so I'm going to prayerfully walk through all three of the exhortations this morning. The first exhortation that we see in the text is let us draw near if you're taking notes. Let us draw near. The, fe- the first exhortation is that we draw near in the presence of God, that we draw near to God himself. Let us draw near, and we'll, we'll get to the true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. But, but the exhortation is for the people of God, since Jesus himself is the great high priest, since Jesus himself has offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice once for all, that the exhortation to the church and to the people of God is to draw near to God. The great end, I would argue, in the gospel is God himself is that he is our treasure, is that he is our prize. And the only true satisfaction for every human soul that has ever been created is to be with God, is to draw near to God. The drawing near to God is the end of the gospel. God is not a means to an end. God is, God is not uh, someone that ultimately gives us something, although he does offer salvation and forgiveness of sins. But the ultimate end in the gospel is God himself, is that the people of God are brought into a right relationship with God. And the good news is that Jesus allows us to draw near to God. God is our prize and God is the gospel. Our treasure and the gift of the good news of Jesus is, is God himself is that we draw near. And the only way that we can draw near, again, is given to us in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament office of of priest. Jesus is referred to as our great high priest all through the book of Hebrews. And so again, to understand fully what this means for New Testament believers, we have to have some comprehension of the Old Testament teachings of what the Levitical priests Would do. You can write these scriptures down. Exodus chapter 19 uh, gives us a good understanding. Exodus chapter 29, uh, Leviticus chapter 9, all through the book of Leviticus. And so Jesus fulfills the role as, as priest. And what the priest would do is that they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. Exodus 19, verses 10 through 12 say this The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, listen, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, listen to this, take care not to go up into the mountain 
or even touch the edge of the mountain as the presence of God would be residing on the mountain. He says, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Again, in Exodus 19, 21 through 23, the Lord says to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and many of them perish. Verse 22, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And if you read in Exodus 29, I'm not going to go through all those details, but it was extensive what the Old Testament priests had to go through in order to be ceremonially clean to even offer sacrifices for the people of God. And we know Leviticus 16 gives us what we call the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is the Jewish holiday. It's where once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, offering uh, a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And this was an extremely fearful time. He entered with fear and trepidation with a rope tied around his ankle and around his waist in case he offered the wrong sacrifices where he would be put to death in the presence of the Lord. The materials that were used in the offerings themselves had to be consecrated and set apart and made ceremonially clean. You can read about Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament, the sons of Aaron, who they offered wrong sacrifices to the Lord and they were immediately put to death. And so the character of God, I mean, when he comes down on the mountain of Sinai, the people are in just complete terror and people are scared to enter into the presence of God because of his holiness and his righteousness and his purity. These Old Testament things, again, are a shadow and a type of what Jesus would ultimately come to fulfill. And so we are to draw near to God. And so how are we to draw near? Look at the text. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And so we draw near with a true heart. We draw near with the confidence that Jesus' sacrifice to God was acceptable and nothing that we have to bring. We come with a true heart, sincerity of motive to enjoy God and experience the joy and pleasures that are at his right hand. Psalm 1611 says this, and I'm sure many of you know it. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is what? Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And there are pleasures forevermore and joy at the right hand of God because of the proximity to God himself is that he alone is our pleasure and he alone is the joy that is to be found. It's nearness to him. So the joy we would experience at the right hand of God and the pleasures come from God himself. And so we're to draw near with a, with a pure motive not to get something out of God. It's not that God would give us stuff, but that God would give us more of himself. It is a heart that is far from hypocrisy, setting aside self and sin to draw near to God in fellowship. It is a heart that isn't using God as a slot machine or our spare tire when life gives us a flat. It's a true heart drawing near in the midst of trials for God and not necessarily a reprieve from those trials. It's a true heart that is undivided, a heart that has relinquished all to get God himself. A true heart wants God because it sees God as enough. We draw 
We draw near to God in full assurance of faith. That's what the text says, in full assurance of faith. And the full assurance of our faith to draw near to God has nothing to do with the intensity of our faith, as D.A. Carson says, but the object of our faith. It's the object of our faith that brings us assurance in the presence of God. It's the, it's the blood of Jesus, the only sufficient sacrifice that was that God accepted. And so our assurance and our confidence before God as a church or as individuals when we draw near to him is based solely on things outside of ourselves. We draw near to God in worship through the blood of Christ. That is why we pray in the name of Christ. It's because Jesus's sacrifice was enough and our faith rests in the finished work of Jesus and Jesus alone. We are wayward and we are fickle. It's not about the intensity or the consistency of our faith. It's about the object of our faith. And the church draws near to God because of the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. But then it says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's what the text says. It says, let us draw near with a true heart, undivided and a full assurance of faith in the finished work of Jesus with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This is a byproduct of the work of Jesus is that our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sin brings guilt and shame. It brings a burdening conscience that comes along with not loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. There's guilt there. And so we draw near to God, trusting in the work of Jesus that takes away the condemnation that sin brings. Jesus bears our guilt and bore our guilt in his body on the cross, our sin in his body on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God. And when the enemy assails and accuses believers and screams in our consciousness, guilty, guilty, we claim in our cries, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a byproduct of the work of Christ himself. So we, we draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean. Stay with me. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's a reference to the new covenant. If you write down Ezekiel 36 verses 24 and 26, Prophesying about the new covenant, it says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. Verse 25 says this, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's referencing the inward spiritual work of the Holy Spirit when he regenerates us. Write down Titus chapter three, verse five. I'll read it. It says, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And then he says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so again, this is a picture of the work of Christ, what's been done inwardly in our hearts as the Holy Spirit has made, quickened us, regenerated us, made us pure in the sight of God. And so the church is to draw near. We're to draw near to God. That is, that is the sole end of the child of God, is that we would know God, is that we would be near to God, that through the gospel we can be made right with God. The more he conforms us into his image, 
into the image of Jesus, into, into the image that was in the beginning. What did Adam and Eve have in the garden that we don't have today? They had a, a perfect uh, experience of the presence of God. There's a, there's, a, there's a perfect relationship there where they can walk and talk. And it's not broken by or fractured by sin. And so as God matures us in the faith, our desire should continuously be for more of God himself. More of God himself. How is it that through the blood of Jesus, we have access to God the Father? And he beckons us to draw near to himself, to lay aside sin and selfishness and preference. And and so often we trample that calling. We settle for, for much lesser than drawing near to God. We yawn at this. We check our watch during worship, during our devotional times, God beckons us to draw near to himself. And it is a fight sometimes because of our selfishness and our fleshly desires for worldly things, but, but we really settle for lesser things when we, we refuse to draw near to the God of all creation, is that we can have a right and vibrant relationship with God. He beckons us to draw near. Is that the desire of your heart this morning? that you draw near because of the work of Jesus and what he's accomplished. James 4, 8 promises us that if we draw near to God, that he will what? That he will, he will draw near to us. He will draw near to us. The church is to draw near by the blood of Jesus. Draw near to God. Draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The second exhortation this morning is to hold fast. That's what the text says. It says, let us hold fast. Hold fast, the Greek word can be translated. It's got this range of meaning to occupy, to restrain from leaving, to take possession of, to detain. Kenneth Weiss says this in his Greek dictionary, an exegetical commentary. He says, the words hold fast are the translation of Katecho, which literally means to hold down. It speaks here of a firm hold by which the, the, the one holding masters the thing that is being held. It was used figuratively, meaning to adhere firmly to the teaching of one's convictions or one's beliefs. So we're to hold fast. What are we to hold fast to as the church? We're to hold fast, it says, the confession of our hope. So what is the confession of the hope of the church of Christ? It is the fullness of the gospel. Our confession is rooted in all of the truths of Scripture, having their apex and the finished work of Christ on our behalf and our standing before God. It's an unashamed profession of our lips of the lordship of Jesus Christ. If a man confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, he shall be saved. It's a profession of the church of Christ that we are a confessional people. 
It's the public confession that Jesus is Lord. It is the the declaration of renouncing sin and clinging to Christ. It is the confession that God loves holiness and that we love holiness and our desire is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. It is a gripping, a holding fast of God himself, persevering in in our profession. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our, of our hope. And Baptists, and again, Baptists believe that once saved, always saved, right? That's a doctrine that we believe. And the issue is not once saved, but the issue is, is, is once saved, is that, is that when God truly does his regenerating work in the Holy Spirit and we, we, we surrender to his lordship, we confess him as Lord, that he keeps us. And as a result, we hold fast to him. It is to hold fast to the doctrines of our faith that have been once and for all handed down to the saints. It, it, is, it is clinging to Christ in the profession and confession we have made publicly, prayerfully through our baptism. And it's written in this word, right? We'd have to infer from the exhortation to hold fast that maybe something's slipping away. We know there are, that there is a world system, that there is an enemy, that there is sin, set against the kingdom of God and his saints and his professors. And so we'd have to ask the question, why why don't people hold fast? Clinging to Christ. And there are multiple answers, but I believe one this morning that we could look at is just the issue of sin itself. It's the issue of taking sin lightly or meddling in sin. You cannot meddle in sin or have unrepentant sin and hold fast the confession of our faith at the same time. And the crazy thing is, is that no one sets out upon their profession of faith in Christ to make a shipwreck of their faith. We don't, we don't set out to do that. It's something that comes, it's a slow fade. It's a loosening of their grip on the confession that they've once made. There becomes maybe an experiential compromise where an experience or, or, or the narrative of someone's life trumps the truth found clearly in the word of God. There becomes a less, less and less zeal, less and less uh, intensity in our pursuit of Christ. But he not only says, hold fast the confession of your faith, how does he say to do that? He says, without wavering. Without wavering, the word wavering in the Greek means to lean, turning a cold shoulder to Christ. He exhorts them not to drift slightly. Keep your heart and your mind fixed on the Lord because of what Jesus has done in his great high priestly and his sufficient sacrifice. Draw near to God and hold fast the confession of our hope. It is Christ himself. Those who do not hold fast waver in their faith. They are like a man who is tossed to and fro from every wind and wave of doctrine. And Jesus taught this in his ministry, Matthew 10, 22. He said, you will be hated by all, but it is the one who what? Who endures to the end who will be saved. He says, then the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God must be preached to all nations. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And it's not that our gripping of God saves us. It's that through the true salvation and the, and the sealing of the spirit of God within us is that he keeps us until the day of judgment. And the thing that God 
begins in us, the work that he begins in us, Philippians 1, 6, that he will bring it to completion. But the exhortation for the church is to hold fast the confession of their hope. Matthew 24, 12, Jesus says, because lawlessness increases, most people's love will grow cold. James chapter one, blessed is the man who what? Under, who perseveres under trial. These commissions and exhortations are found all throughout the New Testament, that we are to hold fast, that, that the human responsibility on our side of the perseverance of the saints is that we cling to Christ, especially in the midst of trials, which is what these Jews were going through. We, the gospel we must preach must be one informing people that the assurance of their faith is their continual fruit-bearing lives. It's their continual holding fast of, the, of their profession that they may have made years earlier. It is the continual, not perfect, but continual work of the Spirit of God to bear fruit in keeping with repentance that gives the assurance to the believer. This does not mean that it is up to ourselves to keep ourselves saved. John MacArthur says, if we could lose our salvation, we would. And I believe that. And we have to look at Jesus' teaching on the parable of the souls is that some express their confession, right? They receive the word with joy and gladness, seemingly shooting out of the starting gate, running as hard and fast as they can, but they waver and they drift and they loosen their grip on Christ Jesus. And Jesus says that the fourth soil is the only one that we can have confidence that is truly regenerate. Why? Because he bore fruit is that he, he, he bore fruit. He persevered in the faith. Jeremiah thirty two forty. you can write that down. God says, I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Speaking of the new covenant. John 17, 11, Jesus prays to God and asks, Holy Father, keep them from tereo. Keep, keep preserving them through your name to those who you have given me. Keep them, keep them. 1 Peter 1, verses four through five, Peter writes this, to an inheritance incorruptible, our inheritance in Christ is incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven from you who are kept. It says, reserved in heaven for you, you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so why do Christians have an inheritance which can never be taken away? Because it's kept by the power of God. It's kept by the power of God. The human side of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, of once saved, always saved, is that we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without leaning, and then it goes to say, our reason that we hold fast and our confidence is that for he who promised is faithful. Why will we hold fast? Because the character of God has made the promises. What sustains and carries me as a believer to continue to persevere in the faith is not necessarily the promises of God, but it's the God of the promises. He does not draw our attention in the text to the promises of God, but to the character of God himself who promises. 
If you want to finish the race, clinging to Christ, we must cling to the God of the promises. The great promise in the Bible, you know, is the gospel itself. The gospel is a promise. It is, it is the promise of everyone who truly believes. Whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord will be saved. It's Philippians 1.6. I've already referenced being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is a promise that, that God makes that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And once they are truly born again, is that he will finish the work that he has begun. There, there isn't hope for one sinner apart from the promises of God. There is a promise for Christ's likeness that he will form the image of Christ in me. He will use the sufferings that come my way in this world for my Christ's likeness. The focus, though, is not on on those promises themselves, but on the character and the nature of God. Know deeply who has made the promises and you will persevere and continue in the faith. The church and the Christian that is fixed on the character of God will never waver. For he who is promised is faithful. He who has promised is faithful. It is his unchangeable nature is that all that he says and all that he promises is tied to his character. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, what? He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. As he saves, he perseveres. And as he begins, he finishes. As he begins, he finishes. The author is writing to a, to a church, to a true church that exists in the world today. Sometimes I think when we read these, these exhortations or when we read the New Testament, it's almost a mythological story separated from reality, but this was a true first century small gathering of believers. They had assembled together, the author writes to them, and so there are personal, specific applications for all these exhortations. But we're going to move on to the third one, which is really the focus of this morning. The focus of this morning. So we are to draw near through the blood of Jesus to God himself, that God is the greatest thing that the gospel could ever offer us. We are to draw near with a true heart, with unmixed motives, with full assurance in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We are to draw near. We are to hold fast the confession of our hope, the profession as Jesus is Lord, without wavering, because God is faithful to finish the work that he starts. And then verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is, as is the habit of some. And so let's just begin from the beginning. It says, let us consider. Now the Greek, to break down some of the Greek, we'll just, I'll talk English terms. The direct object of verse 24 is not to consider how. But in the original Greek, the, the direct object, the thing that receives the action of consideration in the text is one another. Is one another. And so when the author writes to this group of people, the charge is to consider not necessarily first and foremost how to stir one another up, but is that we should consider one another. It's, it's kata neo. It's, it's from kata down. 
It's from noeo, to perceive or think. It literally means to put one's mind down on something. And so to observe or consider carefully and attentively. To consider means to fix one's eyes or mind and to perceive clearly and cautiously and observantly. It's to think about something very carefully or to consider closely. It's in the present, ten, present tense, so it, it calls for a continuous consideration of believers and how to stir them on to love and good works. So the exhortation is to take careful note of the people in your local congregation and to consider how to stir them up to love and good works. And so in a lot of senses, we are our brother's keeper in the flock of God. And first we must consider one another. It's a, it's a command. It's an imperative to consider one another. And this morning, as we think about application, as we examine our church and our own individual lives, is that we must consider one another here this morning, is that the call is to consider Lucy Baptist Church. The scripture is true for every Christian all through time. But, but it specifically has a specific ap application for Lucy Baptist Church, July 3rd, 2016. Don't separate this. This is a call for us, for me, as I did this week, to think of others, to consider deeply the people of our church. And I would argue the people that are on our membership roles. It's a, it, it's a, it's a command, to, again, to, to put Others as the center of our thinking. And that is not something that naturally comes, is it? Is that we naturally think of who? Numero uno. We think of ourselves, right? Philippians 2, 3 through 4, one of the hardest, <laughs> hardest, you know, imperative commands in the New Testament. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to only his own interests, but also to the interest of others. There is no such thing as a biblical Christianity that has at its root the love or the thought of self. The, a natural outflow of the gospel is the consideration of other people, specifically the people in our local church. All throughout the New Testament, all throughout Jesus' teaching, he, he's calling us to love one another. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. John 15, 17, these things I command to you so that you will love one another. Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And the last one I'll read, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So the gospel creates in us, should create in us, a, a great desire to set other people's needs ahead of our own is that the beginning call for you to follow Jesus is to deny what? is to deny yourself, is to deny the love of self, the preference of self. We must be a people who consider our people above ourselves. You were not made to love yourself. You were, you were no more further from God 
or further from the image of God when, when, you, when, when we love ourselves. And that's what sin does, doesn't it? That, that why did Satan fall? Because he wanted to be like God. Self-worship. Why did humanity fall? Well, it was, it was because of the desire to be like God. That was the temptation that seemed good to Eve. And Adam took the fruit and ate as well. And, and so naturally, we, we think of ourselves, we love ourselves, we serve ourselves. The greatest commandment is to love God. And the second one is what? Is, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Is, is, is much like the first. The author says, consider one another. We've been called to a specific body of believers here at Lucy. There is so much more to church membership than having your name on a roll or occasional attendance. The call, the first exhortation, and we're going to continue to break it down, is to consider one another. I must consider Jim Mahana. I must consider Larry Brown. I must consider Ken Worthington and Jessica Joyner and Faye Davis and Debbie Holland. We must consider one another. You must think through your mind the faces and the lives of the people that are members of our church. We must place consideration for them, for their spiritual benefit, for their greatest good. It says, let's continue in the text. It says, consider one another. That's, that's the original Greek. Consider one another and how to stir one another to love and good works. The Greek word means, to, your translation may say stimulate or provoke in the King James, I believe. It's a strong word which literally means to sharpen and figuratively speaks of a sharpening of one's mind or incitement to some action. Depending on the context, it can have a, a positive or a negative meaning. We see the negative meaning, write this down in Acts chapter 15, verse 39. I'll read the text. And there arose such a sharp, disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. It's a, right, there's beef between Paul and whether or not they should take John Mark. And there's a, the word is sharp disagreement. That's the negative sense of stimulate or stir or provoke. So think the opposite of this. We are to provoke or incite one another to what? To love and good works. Spurgeon says this, the Greek is to stir each other up in love. There is no fear that we shall ever go too far in our love to God. Though it should cast us into a state of blessed excitement, yet it would be healthy for us so to live and so to work. I'm afraid that there are some who consider one another to provoke in quite a different spirit than this, who watch to find out a tender spot where a wound will most be felt. They observe the weakness of a brother and they play upon it, make jests about it. All this is evil, so let us avoid it. Let us all seek out the good points of our brothers and sisters and consider them that we may afterwards be the means of guiding them to those particular good works for which they are best adapted. Now we live in a very consumeristic society. And unfortunately, the church has adapted some of that same mentality, that the church is an offer of goods. And so we ask the question when we visit a church, what do they have to offer me? What do they have to offer my family? As, again, as if the church is a supplier of goods and services. And the people 
Are clients or shoppers? Is this the music that I like? Is this the preaching that I like? Are they meeting my preferences? Do they have me in mind? And we are to consider one another as members of the body of Christ and consider ourselves last. That we have lost our rights being purchased by the blood of Jesus. And we'd have to say that that it works the opposite effect as well. So if we are to consider our own preferences within the body of Christ, our way, our preferences, it snuffs out zeal. It hinders the spirit. It discourages the saints and it hinders love and good works. And if you make church life about yourself, you're aiding in the choking out of love and good works that the Spirit of God wants to produce in the body. The attitude of self-service is really self-worship. And it's at the root, as we've seen, of humanity's fall. The author of Hebrews says, no, consider one another. Place others as more important than yourselves. Esteem the needs of others and consider how to stimulate or provoke one another onto love and good works. You play a role in the spiritual vitality of this local church. You are either aiding in the spiritual stimulation of love and good works or hindering it through an attitude of self-service. We drift that way. We are to spur and stimulate and provoke one another onto love. The exhortation is all an overflow of what in verses 19 and 20 because of the work of Christ is that we spur one another up to love and good deeds. That we should have a growing desire to see other people in our church grow to love Jesus more. Is that as we are drawing near to God and as we are holding fast the confession of our faith and the hope of our faith is that we are calling others to do the same is that the greatest desire of my heart is that I love Jesus more. And so I should think and consider members of our church and how I can provoke them to experience the same joy in Christ. This may include encouragement, as we're gonna see. This may include a rebuke or prayer or leading just by example. We are to intentionally care about the spiritual formation of our brothers and sisters in Christ. A part of loving people toward good works is sometimes can mean lovingly, gracefully confronting them with sin. Sin at the end of the day is what hinders us from loving and serving God. It's sin. Sin robs us of our joy, our flesh, indulging in itself, pursuing worldly desires. That is what snuffs out and hinders the joy and love and good works that the Spirit of God would desire to produce in our church. So the church is a means of God's grace to stir you up, to provoke you to loving good works and for you to stir one another up. Good works, the good, what are these good works? Well, we know that in Ephesians 2, we see that we're saved by grace, but that God has saved us for good works that we may walk in them. Walk in them. And so when he says how to stir up one another, it means that every believer should encourage, exhort, admonish, even rebuke other believers to press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is our existence. That is the goal of the church is that we should be a body of people gathering together, encouraging one another, 
even rebuking one another in love, admonishing exhortation, all for the purpose that we would love and treasure Christ more, to fight the good faith. You play a responsibility in this, and this is an overflow of the gospel. And then he goes on, because I'm, I'm running out of time. All right, we're gonna finish. Verse 24, and let us consider one another and how to stir one another up. Think of a pot, we're dropping names in, we're stirring, provoking, spurring one another up, encouraging, not with malicious motive, but for the desire that we would love Jesus more together. Stir one one another up to love and good works. And then verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he says, let us not neglect to meet as is the habit of some, encouraging one another as we assemble. It's God's desire. It's his wisdom. And when we talk about church attendance, typically there's a, there's a notion that people think, well, the pastor, pastor's telling me I need to be here more. I mean, he's getting on to me about church attendance. Brothers, I didn't write it, right? I'm just the messenger. And when we talk, it's so much deeper than attendance. That's the thing. That the, that the neglect of the consistent gathering together of the church and your desire to do that and your participation in that is so much deeper and greater than it, just an issue of attendance. The attendance is a message that speaks of your true desire and, and the, the love of your heart. Philip Hughes says this. He says, this verse should be understood as simply the regular gathering together of Christian believers for worship and exhortation in a particular place. That is here. That is us. That is us. The flow of the text reveals that assembling together is a way in which we stir one another up. We are to stir one another up. Then verse 25, it flows, not neglecting to meet together. So meeting together, we are to stir one another up as we meet together and encourage one another. Encourage one another. You do not have to go to church to be a Christian. We know that. But going to worship is just that. It's, it's revealing that a core desire of your heart is to be with the people of God and to worship with the people of God. And what you communicate when you consistently miss the gathering of the saints is that one, you don't really, you don't have a high priority on your spiritual growth because the local church is not some man-made thing. The you know, consistent participation is are the words of God. It's God's wisdom that I'm communicating. It's God's plan for our best and his motivation for calling us to consistently assemble is not that we would be guilted into coming. He must have love as his motivation when he gives this to us. So it shows me that you don't have your spiritual growth as as a high priority or the spiritual growth of these people, of us, of Lucy Baptist Church. The person who consistently neglects the gathering of the saints hinders the stirring up of love and good works that would be produced by the Spirit of God in the body. And how can we carry out the one another's if we are never with one another? If you're never with God's people, how can we be obedient to the, I mean, there's so many one another's in the New Testament. If the gathering of the local church is the most public, consistent way to pledge your allegiance, why shouldn't there be concern if people are consistently, habitually missing? A lack of church attendance for the professing believer tells a lie to the surrounding culture of what it means to follow Jesus and be a Christian. 
And it can also promote and foster a false sense of assurance of salvation in the person that is consistently missing. If my main concern and your main concern for one another is our spiritual growth and our joy in God, why would we not talk to people who are neglecting the God-ordained means that he has given us in the professing Christians' lives to help them grow toward that end. If my desire for you is that you grow in grace, is that you mature as a believer in Christ and you're neglecting a foundational staple in the mature Christian's life, why would I not talk to you about that? Why would, I, why would we not have that conversation? God has ordained that the greatest expression of his glory, this side of heaven, be manifested in the church, the people of God assemble. We have to get really personal and think about our church. Think about our membership role. And it breaks my heart to think about our membership role, not because I want more people in this room or that David and I want more people in this room so that we can feel better about ourselves because it's not about us. But, but again, it gives us indication that if you neglect the assembly, that, you're, that, that maybe you're drifting or maybe that you have drifted. It, 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 it's, it's a sign that maybe your heart is not finding its contentment and its joy in Christ and in Christ alone. It's not about numbers, I promise. It's not about numbers. It's for, it's for the, the underlying principle. It, it's a deeper issue than you just coming in these doors and sitting in the pews to fill up the room. It's for your spiritual good. God has ordained this. And it preaches a message if we consistently miss that our heart is not with the people of God to worship the bride of Christ. And we've looked at this in Acts chapter 9. When Paul is persecuting the church, Jesus says what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So to consistently abandon the church, but say that you love Jesus and the church is the bride of Christ, it's a reason to have some concern about their confession to love Jesus himself. The church is not, you know, we don't say whether or not people are saved. You know, nobody knows a man's heart. That is true. But a clear indication for the mature Christian growing in grace and loving God and loving one another is the consistent attendance to a local church. It shows a lost and dying world where we truly belong and where our heart is. Many don't come to gather with us and with the saints because they don't belong there. And I, I don't say that as an exclusive, arrogant jab in the sense that they're not worthy to be here. I'm saying that they might not be of us, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Their hearts are not treasuring Jesus. I pray that our membership role burdens you more than anything to think about people who may have false assurance of their salvation, but refuse to meet to worship the God that they claim to love more than anything. So, application, let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this up. He continues to go on, not neglecting to meet together, as is, as is the habit of some. The habit of some, he says, but encouraging one another. Parakaleo is the Greek word. It literally means to call, let's look at, I mean, the illustration is to call one alongside to call someone to oneself, to call for, to summon. 
Parakaleo can, can include the idea of giving help or aid. The primary sense in the New Testament is to urge someone to take action. A Greek historian used Parakaleo described to describe a military re- regiment who had lost heart and they were dejected and they were discouraged. And the general sent a leader to talk to the disheartened ranks so that he unveiled them that their courage was reborn and a body of dispirited men became fit again for heroic action. It's present tense is something that we are to continuously do to one another. It's to call them alongside and to say, let us follow Jesus together. It's to encourage one another. Let us follow Christ together. Let us leave our sin that robs us of our joy behind. Let us die to our preferences that can cause division. Let us study the word. Let us labor in prayer. Let us together be about kingdom business. Let us refuse to gossip. Let us submit to our leadership. Let us love our wives. We had a dinner the other night for Blake, and uh, it, you know, it was kind of like a, a Christian version of a bachelor party. Uh, it's an affirmation dinner is what we had. And so we had him here and we affirmed him as men. And, and uh, the married guys in the room <coughs> gave some exhortation to him about our marriage. And it was, th- that was a picture of spurring one another on to love and good works because I left that dinner hearing the testimonies of godly men, how they talk about how they're trying to die to themselves and, and place the needs of their wives above their own. It was a, it was a parakaleo dinner is that we encourage Blake to fight against sin, to pursue Christ, to love his wife, to die to his self. And I walked away from that dinner wanting to love Hillary more than I ever had before. And I thought, God, please create that in our church. Let us have believers that are encouraging one another to hold fast to our encouragement, to draw near to God and to call other people, to call us together as a body to love God above all else. We could go on and on about things that we could encourage and exhort one another in. But then he says, as the day is drawing near. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. I'm not going to read it. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. I won't read that one either. These are references to the day of the Lord. But here's what I want us to see as, as we close. There will be a unique expression of the glory and the presence of God on that day. And so the encouragement to these believers and to us is that we encourage, that we call one another along to enjoy the greatest manifestation of the presence and the glory of God, this side of heaven, which is in the local assembly. Because it begs the question, if we have no desire whatsoever to enjoy the closest thing that we're going to get this side of heaven in the local church as we experience the presence and the glory of God, what makes us think that on that day that we would enjoy a greater manifestation of the presence and the glory of God? That should be the desire of our heart to worship with the saints, to meet with God in prayer, to have our eyes enlightened to the deep truth of God's word to be fed and challenged and exhorted for the end, all in the end. This is not motivated out of guilt. I'm not telling you to, to be here more. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but the end is our formation in Christ's likeness, which is the greatest good that we could ever have as a church, being conformed into the image of Jesus. And God has given the local church as a means of grace that aids in that conforming into his image. September 11th, 2013, 
marks the day that was my first Sunday at Lucy Baptist. It'll be three, I'm trying to do some math here, three years uh, in September. Uh, upon the call of this congregation and upon the call of God, I became responsible to God to serve with David in the oversight of your souls. This means I have responsibilities as a pastor that David and I have responsibilities as a pastor. And the motivation for challenging you on your participation in local worship, whether it be the prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, whether it be community groups or corporate worship or not leaving the service after Sunday school or whatever the case may be, the commission and the challenge is not motivated out of guilt to get more people in here as if it were about us. But, but we understand that by the, the grace of God, that a means of his grace is this local body. And what we need is more Christ-likeness. And Hebrews 13 tells me that I will be held accountable for people. I'll be held accountable for your souls, for how I lead and how I exhort and how we shepherd and the action that we take. I'm wondering, I've been wondering, am I gonna be held accountable for our role? And that's a serious question. We must do everything that we can to exhort those people to continue to bear fruit in repentance. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.